Um, I'd encourage you, if you have a Bible, to open it up. We're going to be continuing in our series through the Gospel of Matthew. If you're not familiar where Matthew is, it's the first Gospel of the New Testament, the first book of the New Testament. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one under one of the seats near you. Pick that up, follow along, and if you don't own a Bible, there's a little bookshelf in our foyer that has Bibles and other resources. Please pick up anything that's of use to you and that you would like to look at. So as you open that Bible, we have kind of a crazy relationship with it in our culture today, right? There are some that totally will write this off as a book that was written 3,000 years ago, starting over a period of about 1,000 years. It's outdated, outmoded. Why should we believe it, right? It tells us that we shouldn't be eating shellfish. I, for one, really like crab. It tells us we're not to be wearing clothes made of two different fabrics. I like polycotton blends. My wife really likes them because she doesn't have to iron them. And uh, you read through the Old Testament, and there's stuff in there that you read, and you go, what in the, why in the, whoa. I didn't know this was in the Bible. And if you look at the Bible, you recognize that about 43% of the Bible is story, it's narrative. So, so what in the world am I to do with some of these stories? And some of these stories, they, they're not even good stories. The, the people are not painted in a really positive light. In fact, often they're doing stuff that just go totally against what God has called for. And then 33% of this Bible is poetry. So you've got 76% of this Bible that is story and poetry. And how do we go about working that into our lives today? It's a challenge. And then there are parts of it that are commandments. But then you look at some of those commandments and you just wonder, how in the world can I apply this in my life today? I'm not a farmer, so leaving the gleanings at the edge of my field, I'm not really sure how that applies. You know, I've never been tempted to boil a mother goat or a kid in its mother goat's milk, so I'm just really not sure what to do with all of this. And so we look at that and you recognize, wow, this is a problem that's gone all the way back to the beginning of the church. One of the first major false teachers in the church was a guy named Marcion, and he came up with kind of his own Bible. And Marcion was a guy that didn't like the Old Testament at all. He removed all of the Old Testament, and the references to the Old Testament in the New Testament, he would oftentimes radically change or just eliminate altogether. The passage we're going to look at this morning, his followers changed it a little bit, and they had Jesus saying, I have not come to fulfill the law and the prophets, but to abolish them. And if we read that, we'll recognize they flip those verbs in that way. So we see that this has been a challenge in the church from the very start. So how do we look at these scriptures, especially the Old Testament, especially when they seem to be story after story of failure? There's hope that's built up, Adam and Eve, this new creation, and then by a few pages in, you're like, oh, that's gone really south. And then you get to Abraham, and things go along well, and then that goes south. And then you get to David, he's a great king, and that goes south. Well, maybe it's Solomon, no, 700 wives, 300 concubines, led his heart away from the Lord, that goes south. Well, maybe one of the following kings, well, no, they keep going down, and down and it's failure after failure and exile and by the time of Christ 
even though the people, a remnant of the people are back in the, the land, the two tribes that weren't exiled to Assyria but to Babylon, they were back and there was the temple again, Herod's temple, but they were still kind of under foreign oppression and many of the Jews felt like they were still in exile even though they were back in their own land. But mixed in throughout the Old Testament are these glimmers of hope. Yeah, Moses, he blew it. He wasn't even allowed to go into the promised land, but there's going to be another prophet that's going to be like Moses that comes. Yeah, David, we thought maybe he would be the one, but there's going to be great David's greater son, the Messiah that he calls Lord that is, that is coming. And then we get into the prophets and we see that there's a son that's going to be born that's going to be called Mighty God and Wonderful Counselor, and he's going to be a prince that rules all things, and there's this time to come that's going to be awesome, but it's all not yet worked out. So you read through the Old Testament and it reads like an unfinished story. Where's the hope? What do we do with this thing? How do we approach these things that are called the writings of God or the scriptures? And that's where the little verses we're gonna look at today as Jesus is preaching his sermon on the mount or sermon about the gospel of the kingdom where he talks about how he looks at these scriptures. Because if you look out there in the world today, there's going to be a million different ways that people are going to say you're supposed to look at the Old Testament scriptures. Some say we need to apply this rigorously in our, even in our culture. There are those that are called theonomists that want to go back to kind of a theocratic society where all the rules of the Old Testament for civil government apply. And then there's others like Marcion that just says, let's chuck the whole thing. None of that stuff really matters. But I think what we should be asking ourselves is how does Jesus look at the Old Testament? How does he view it? And this little passage of scripture is gonna explain that. So I'll be starting to read in Matthew chapter five with verse 17. This is Jesus speaking. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes or loosens one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is a reading of God's word. So you read through this initially and kind of at cursory glance, you're, there's a challenge that comes up, right? And, or at least in my thinking, it's like, okay, Jesus says I didn't come to abolish the law but to fulfill it and then there's not even an iota, which is the smallest Greek letter. Phil, do you have that slide up there? And uh, the famous King James is no jot or tittle. So what the heck is a jot and a tittle? A jot is that yod there. That's a letter of the Hebrew alphabet, the smallest one. Yahweh starts with yod. And a tittle is the difference between a resh and a dalet. This little part right there, that's a tittle. So Jesus is saying the Old Testament in every specific incident 
is significant and important and has value, even down to that little tittle. So if you would read something, and in the beginning it says Adam, right? If you leave off that little thing, it would be Aram. So we move from talking about a person to a country. So Jesus is putting a lot of significance into the value and the authority of the Old Testament. And he says, truly I say to you, this is the first time that he says that. This is a phrase that occurs about 50 times in the rest of the gospel. He says, pay attention. This is really important. Until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a yod, not a tittle, not a serif that they're called, will pass away from the law until it is all accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And if you see this created a lot of challenge with people as they looked at this and said, okay, Is Jesus calling us to be even more fastidious and meticulous at applying the law than the scribes and the Pharisees? The scribes were that group of people that studied the law and then they applied it to life. And they looked at the law and said, okay, it says not to work on the Sabbath, but what does that really mean? That's kind of general, right? So the scribes came up, they had basically 40 rules of what you could do and couldn't do on the Sabbath, what actually was work, right? And there was, you read these rabbis and there was disagreement, you know? Can you carry a lamp, and the lamps are really small, can you carry a lamp on the Sabbath? Well, we're not really sure, and if you are sinning, what if you're a tailor, and there, one of the questions was, if there's a pin that's left in your garment, and you walk outside with that pin, is that work carrying that? They were even arguing about, hey, if a guy's got false teeth, If a guy goes out with a false teeth, is that carrying a burden and he should not wear his false teeth on the Sabbath? So you get into this and you realize, wow, you know, these people were super meticulous. The Pharisees then were were kind of the lay people that said, we're going to seek to apply this law in every little detail. And we see Jesus later talking to him and says, man, you you tithe even your, your herbs, you got a little mint in your garden and you figure, okay, what's 10% of this? I need to bring that into the temple. So is Jesus here saying, wow, we've got as believers to be even more fastidious about obeying the law because he says here that, man, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until it's all accomplished and if you're one that relaxes these laws and doesn't apply them, you're gonna be least in the kingdom of heaven. But you see that, and then you look at Jesus' life, and you're like, you begin to scratch your head. And it's like, well, isn't this Jesus one that often seemed to go out of his way to heal on the Sabbath? To do stuff like spitting in the mud and put, you know, why did he do that? Because you could spit on a rock on the Sabbath, but if you spit on dirt in the Sabbath, that was making mud, and that was work. So Jesus on the Sabbath spits in the mud, kind of like, here's mud in your eye, (laughs) Pharisees. And so he seemed to go out of his way sometimes to poke at these Guys, we see Jesus doing outrageous stuff like, you know, a guy's brought in and he says stuff like, your sins are forgiven. It's like, who has the audacity to do that? There's a way that you get your sins forgiven and that's you you go to the temple, you bring the appropriate sacrifice, you bring it to the priest and here this Jesus has the audacity, right? Just to say your sins are forgiven. Who does this guy think he is? He's acting like he owns the place. And when his disciples are doing some stuff on the Sabbath and getting some grain to eat, 
Jesus has the audacity to say, hey, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. I'll do on the Sabbath what I want to do on the Sabbath because I'm boss and king of the Sabbath. And so you, you look at this and Jesus is doing all these things and it's like, wow, it doesn't seem to be every jot and tittle, every yod and serif, he doesn't seem to be really following that. And then you look at what some of his followers have said, some of his disciples. This is Paul. In Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. It's like, well, hold on. Didn't God almost kill Moses because he hadn't circumcised his son? So what in the world is gone? Paul just said, it doesn't really matter that much. But only faith working through love. That's Galatians 5, 6. And then that righteousness, the righteousness that we need does not come by an observance of the law. Romans 3, it, it comes by faith in Christ and Paul reiterates this fact that we don't have a righteousness that's our own that comes by our observance of the law, but it's the righteousness that comes by our trust and faith in Jesus Christ. What happens to the jots and tittles again? In Romans 10, 4, it says this, that Jesus is the end of law, the law for righteousness to the believer. Jesus is the end of the law. Well, didn't he just say here, every jot and... It's like... And then you read through the whole book of Hebrews. And over and over and over again, it's Jesus is better than, better than, better than. He's better than the sacrificial system. There's no more need for that, right? And if you look at the Old Testament, a huge portion of the Torah, the first five books, is devoted to the sacrificial system, how it's to be carried out. And the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 8.13 says the sacrificial system is obsolete, it's passing away. So do you see the difficulty as believers wrestled with this passage? Before we dig into it, I want to give a couple of my kind of assumptions as I approach texts like this. First is that Jesus isn't a hypocrite and he's not an idiot, right? And that we need to look kind of at the whole counsel of God's word as we look at some of these passages where we first read through them and we start scratching our heads and wonder, how in the world do I put these things together? So let's look at this text and try and figure out what Jesus is trying to say about the law and the prophets. And if you read that, the law and the prophets, that was the Jews' way of referring to the Old Testament scriptures. Sometimes it's the law, the prophets, and the writings. Sometimes it's just the law and the prophets. Sometimes he just says, just the law. But the idea is that this is the Old Testament. These various books, they wouldn't have been compiled into one book. They would have been on various scrolls kept at the synagogue. But he says, I've not come to abolish the law and the prophets. And that word was used of, of tearing down buildings. And as it referred to the law, it meant basically disobeying the law. So Jesus says, don't think that I've come to abolish the law. That lets me know that there were a lot of people that were thinking, hey, Jesus is running roughshod over the law. He's just doing what, he's, he's here, he's ready to tear that law down. And so Jesus counters that. He says, I've not come to abolish the law and the prophets, the Old Testament. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And it's an interesting word he chooses. You would think he would say, I've not come to abolish them, not obey them. I've come to obey them. But that's not what he says. I've come to fulfill them. 
And we've seen this as one of Matthew's favorite words that he uses of Jesus. And, and it's this idea of Jesus basically fulfills the whole Old Testament. That's all pointing to Jesus. He is the focus of the Old Testament. And we've seen that that can come down to a specific prophecy, say in Micah, as to where the Messiah was to be born, right, in Bethlehem. But it can also refer in this fulfillment to kind of a filling out of these pictures or types or foreshadowings in the Old Testament. And we saw that when Matthew said, and he quotes from the Old Testament, out of Egypt I've called my son. It's clear that that was referring to the Israelis coming out of Egypt, but Matthew says this is a fulfillment in Christ when he went down to Egypt. So Christ basically is the perfect Israelite following their pattern. And here he says, I've not come to abolish the law and the prophets, the Old Testament, but to fulfill them. And to me, looking at this word fulfill is really key as we seek to understand how we should look at the Old Testament. Again, as you look at the Old Testament, I can see, okay, Jesus fulfills the prophets. That's a little bit more understandable. You look at Isaiah, you see this servant, you see the Messiah that's coming. But how in the world does God fulfill, or does Jesus fulfill the law? Most of you are familiar with some of the law, right? The Ten Commandments, probably, that's, that's familiar. Okay, after the Ten Commandments, there came either 601 or 603 other ones, depending on what rabbi you listen to. I prefer to go with 611, because 611, if you look at the Hebrew word Torah, Hebrew letters also had numerical values, and Torah adds up to 611. I think there were some brilliant writers that were putting this thing together. But the idea is, there's a whole lot of this stuff that is there, and how in the world does, does Jesus fulfill the law in that way? If you look at a few chapters later in Matthew 11, he says this, verse 13, for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. So for all the prophets and the law, they prophesied until John. So what is being said there? is the whole Old Testament is a prophecy, and that prophecy continued until John. Why did it stop when John came on the scene? Because Jesus was there, right? There didn't need to be any more prophecy, because instead of saying there's a Messiah that was going to come, what did John say? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So when Jesus says, I fulfill the law, he says the whole Old Testament is pointing to me. That's a pretty audacious claim, isn't it? Hey, everything you read, it's all about me. And so all the prophecies, all these types, all these pictures focus in on this Messiah, this one that's gonna come, this perfect human, but this also the God that's made flesh and dwells among us. Everything is fulfilled in him. I've not come to abolish that. In fact, I've come to fill all that out, to add kind of completeness and to culminate what all this was pointing to. So Jesus says, I'm not here to abolish anything. I'm here to fulfill it. And when we look at that Romans 10.4 passage, it says Jesus is the end of the law for righteousness to all that believe. 
That little word end there does not mean, eh, that's the end of it, we're done with it. It means it's, Jesus is the goal, the completion, the focus. So Paul is saying there, Jesus, even the law, it all points to him that he is then that source of righteousness. How is the law fulfilled? Because Jesus, the law points to what? What it looks like to be a perfect imager of God, be in perfect relationship with God. Has any human on this planet ever done that? No. So Jesus fulfilled, this is what I want you to be, Jesus says, this is, this is what I am. Jesus, towards the end of his life, says, uh, anybody here, can anybody accuse me of sin? Ask that to a wide crowd. Ask that to your family sometime. Hey, anybody here? Uh, there's a bunch of hands go up, yeah. yeah. There's a few things that I can mention, right? But nobody could say that with Jesus because he was the fulfillment even of the law. He is the one that is the perfect human. But we also know he was the one that came to give his life so that we could have life. Jesus says, don't blow off the Old Testament. That stuff is really significant. It was really important because it all points to me. And then he says, all this stuff is significant and will have bearing and authority until it's all accomplished. And again, that's another thing that I think is really significant. When is it all accomplished? When Jesus begins to do all that he is here to do, right? We just sang, what did Jesus say on the cross? It's finished, right? So the law and the prophets point to this ultimate sacrifice and there's beauty in looking at those prophecies about the Passover and what that represents and there needs to be, we're all guilty and there needs to be a sacrifice, an innocent victim that takes my place, that bears the death that I deserve so that death can pass over me and there's a beautiful picture there that goes on and on and on but then in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Paul says, Jesus is our Passover lamb. He's the one that fulfilled that. And that's why the author of the book of Hebrews can say, because it's been accomplished, because everything that the sacrificial system pointed to in Jesus has been accomplished, therefore there doesn't need to be any more sacrifice. There doesn't need to be a high priesthood because Jesus is the high priest. He fulfills all of this. So he's not saying, okay, we need to obey every jot and tittle in terms of doing everything like he did, but now Jesus, the one that has arrived that it all pointed to, he is the one that then should help us to understand how to apply all this. And he says, take it seriously. And then he goes on, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So he says here, whoever relaxes, um, I think the NIV says breaks these commandments. That's not the best translation. It's a word that literally means to loosen up or to relax. And so what I think Jesus is talking about here is those parts of the law that hit our heart hard, we have a tendency to want to relax them a little bit, make them a little bit more palatable for us to be able to to apply in life. And later on, he says, your righteousness needs to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And we hear that, it's like, oh, we don't like, the Pharisees are bad dudes. But that's not the attitude of those living at the time of Jesus. At the time of Jesus, the scribes and the Pharisees, they were the most righteous, religious, upright people around. And so when Jesus says, man, you've got to be more righteous than these people for you to be even getting into the kingdom of heaven, 
that would have been astoundingly shocking. It'd be like saying, man, you have to have more concern for the poor than Mother Teresa, and you have to share the gospel with more people than Billy Graham to get into the kingdom of heaven. And everyone's like, what? There's just, you know, how in the, this is, you know, I can't do that. But Jesus says, do it. And so to relax is to, to lighten the load a little bit. And we see in the Pharisees and the teachers of the law this tendency when we can't kind of really apply these things, we're going to kind of just look at the outside, just look at the externals in life. And to me, that's what religion always does. It's like, okay, let's not, let's not focus on what's inside. Let's focus on, on what's outside. And as long as I'm tithing my mint and dill and cumin, and as long as I'm praying so many times a day and I'm checking those boxes, man, I'm good. I'm righteous. I'm in. And everybody in that day and age would think, yeah, that's, that's the way it is, isn't it? And then when Jesus says this statement like, you got to be better than these guys, what in the world is he saying? Is he saying, you've got to beat these guys at, at their game? No, I think what he's calling for is a totally different kind of righteousness. It's not a righteousness that's focused on the outside, but a righteousness that's focused on the inside. And Jesus said, basically, all the law and prophets pointed to me, the only one that's completely righteous from the inside that flows out to the outside. But even as you look at the Old Testament, even the Old Testament points to a time where this ultimately is going to be the reality, that the desire for the Lord was always to have our hearts. It wasn't for us to just check religious boxes, right? Remember Psalm 51 where David said, you know, sacrifices, offerings you didn't desire but a broken and contrite heart. The Old Testament even speaks about not external circumcision but circumcision of the heart. And the Old Testament even says, you know, basically there's going to be a change coming. This is the old covenant or the first covenant they would know. But even in that first covenant, the authors pointed to something that was coming that was going to be more. And we find that in Jeremiah 31 and in Ezekiel 36. I want to just read Jeremiah 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So even Jeremiah is pointing this time, it's like, okay, this old covenant, that was provisional. It was for a period of time, but there's a new covenant coming. And the problem wasn't necessarily with the law. The problem was with people's what? Their hearts. 
Their hearts were hard, and Ezekiel says the same thing. He's gonna take out this heart of stone in us and put a heart of flesh that's responsive to God and will allow his Holy Spirit to dwell within us. So our obedience comes out of an internal motivation versus an external one. Because as you know, it's a whole lot easier to obey on the outside than on the inside, right? You know, remember a story about a kid that was acting out and was told to sit down and you know, finally the kid sat down and says, I'm sitting down, but on the inside, I'm standing up. You know, that, that reality of, okay, you cannot, you know, I am, I'm still in, and, and so you can do that and you can mold and shape kids to a particular age and then you realize, wow, there's a lot of freedom they have. They're gonna do what they wanna do and so the important thing is that their hearts have been touched by God, not that I'm the helicopter parent and watching over every move they make to try and, keep them obeying because if they're not motivated from the inside out, that's not gonna last very long. So Jesus says here that the Old Testament has great authority in that it points to me. And then he said, I want you guys to be obeying the law, the commandments. And what is Jesus talking about there? Is he talking about the Old Testament commandments or all the commandments that he's gonna give in the Sermon on the Mount? I think yes is the answer to that question. Because right after what Jesus says here, he gives six instances and he says, you've heard it said, but I say to you. So Jesus is not opposed to the law. He's opposed to a misapplication and interpretation of that law in the people's lives by those that were religious leaders that were in essence, relaxing it, making it somewhat doable, at least in an external way, because that totally bypassed this heart change that God wants to bring to us. And he says, your righteousness has to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees, even to enter into the kingdom. And we look at that and like, how in the world? Well, how do we enter the kingdom? When Jesus was talking to Nicodemus, he said, how do you enter the kingdom? You gotta be born again or born from above. So this passage does not deal with, in essence, what we need to do to earn our place in the kingdom, but how once we come to the kingdom, we respond to the law of God. And to me, that's the law interpreted as Jesus interpreted it, to making it a heart issue instead of an external issue. It's not the letter of the law, but the spirit that directs us as believers. And as you look at the law, Jesus said basically what he was asked, what are the two most important commandments in all the law? Speak up. Come on, I know you guys. Love the Lord your God with what? Everything you've got and love your neighbor as yourself. So basically Jesus boiled all the law down. This is the two things that I was trying to get across in the law. This is the focus. This is the goal. And I want that to be an internal transformation that happens in your heart. And you begin to look at the world differently. And he says, when you do that, then you will begin to live out these moral obligations of the law in your life. So Jesus, he has an extremely high view of Old Testament scripture. Every part is significant and important. And to me, as I look at scriptures, I don't necessarily go to scriptures and say, well, they're authoritative and therefore I believe in Jesus. I look at Jesus and say, wow, he's the only one that I ever knew rose from the dead and that's, he's impacted my heart, so how does he look at scriptures? And when he looks at scriptures, he takes them very seriously. He says every part of this is important till it's all fulfilled, till it's all accomplished. 
And a lot of it was accomplished when he came and gave his life for us on that cross. And then he begins to flesh out, okay, what does the rest of this law look like in our lives as we seek to live this out in our day to day? And that's what we're gonna get into in the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard it said, but I say to you, how do we live this law out in our day and age? So the righteousness Christ is calling us to is not a more fastidious, external, legalistic righteousness. It's a righteousness that comes out of the heart, that's prompted by a change in our heart by the Holy Spirit as we enter in to the kingdom of God by faith. And as Paul said, you know, circumcision, uncircumcision, it's just not that important. What counts is faith acting through love. We constantly get back to this thing, love. God's transformation makes us people of love. And that's what should mark us as Christians, right? By this, all men will know you're my disciples if you have really fastidious obedience and you're all bringing your mint and dill and cumin to church and tithing that and making sure, you know, that you're tithing exactly 10% of that. No, it's if you have love one for another. So Jesus, in essence, he doesn't relax the law. In fact, he intensifies the law. And we'll see that with these next, you've heard it said, but I say to you. And each one of those, he moves it from something external to something internal in our heart. You've heard it said, don't murder anybody, right? Most of us, you know, that's not a huge issue. We're we're probably not going to, some of us may struggle with that, but most not, right? But do we have anger issues? Have you driven on the roads recently? Maybe you were one that received some anger. Maybe you were one that gave some anger, right? And so Jesus moves that from an external to an internal. With lust, it's not just the adultery. It's what goes on here before that even happens again, internalizing all this stuff. So it's in one sense we can obey in an external way, but Jesus is saying, you know what? I want that law to be written on your hearts. I want that inner transformation. So you begin to look at people like I look at people with love and compassion, and you look at me with that sense as well. So given all this, how should we view the Old Testament when we read it? Well, the first thing To me, we need to ask and pray for the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, to give us wisdom in seeking to apply this to our lives. Because frankly, some of it is really challenging. I don't want to minimize the challenge of that. And some biblical scholars will separate. There's the moral law, there's the civil law, and then there's the ceremonial law. And that sounds great, but it gets a little messy when you're trying to work that out in practice and pull particular laws out and figure out which one is, is which there. But the reality is we need the wisdom of God not to ignore these things, but to get to the heart. What was God trying to say through this particular law or through this particular story? And so to me, the first thing is when we look at the Old Testament to allow those types, those shadows, those foreshadowings to help us increase our appreciation of Christ. We talked about the Passover before, that Jesus is our, what is all that? 
involve. And as we look at the Old Testament, wow, that's pretty cool. And, and this is what that means about Jesus, the ultimate fulfillment of that. Or Jesus is our high priest, so what did the high priest do? And what is Jesus doing for me? So as we look at the Old Testament in terms of it's all fulfilled in the new, then I think we can get a greater appreciation of who this Jesus is and we fall down and worship, you are this kind of a God. All of these things are fulfilled in you, Jesus. And you are the only one that is perfect, and because you were perfect, I have your righteousness. Because I blow this law every day, every moment of every day, almost. So to gain an appreciation for what Jesus has done and accomplished for us. Second, when we encounter a command to ask ourselves, okay, what's the principle of love that's behind this command? I talked about not gleaning your fields to the edges, right? When I was in business school, what I was told was the main thing for corporations, the number one command for a corporation, maximize shareholder wealth. That's the only thing that matters. So if you can grind your workers to a pulp and you can make more money out of them, then that's great because shareholder wealth will be maximized and usually your shareholders are not those that work for the company. So if you can grind up people and spit them out, then that's okay. And so Jesus says, don't glean your fields, or the, the law says, don't glean your fields to the edges. What is it saying? Care for the poor. Care for those that don't have enough. Give them some of your, quote, profits so that they don't starve. So what does that say to a business person in our culture today? She's running a business. She's a CEO. It's like, okay, what, what do I do? Do I push this to the very edge or do I say you know what we can pay our workers a little bit more or we can give to this cause a little bit more there's a compassion that's built in there and that's a contrary thought to maximizing shareholder wealth but to me that's one of the ways we begin to think through how is this command evidencing love for God or someone else and to approach it in that way not to think okay there's a specific I, I need to get a field and I need to you know in my garden not go all the way, no, it's what's being, there's a principle behind this, like there was a principle behind the Passover, that there needs to be a sacrificial substitute, and that ultimate principle is lived out in Jesus Christ, but there's foreshadowings of that that come, so God help me to see in those foreshadowings what I am called to do and be in the midst of this world. And I think also, I think the law has two roles. The first is to, and Paul talks about this a lot, it's to drive us to Christ, to get us to realize, man, there's no way we do this. And if we think Jesus relaxed that, look at chapter five, verse 48. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Okay, anybody lived up to that? Not me, right? So one, that's, that's, that drives me to my knees and said, Jesus, I am not perfect, but you are the only one that is, so I need your righteousness. I'm trusting in you, and that's the beauty of the gospel of salvation that I come. But then once I come, then the law has a purpose in my life of guiding me to be the kind of human being that God wants me to be. To be loving and gracious and kind, not to earn God's favor and his acceptance, not to be more fastidious than the Pharisees and the scribes, but to, to live this out in a way that my love is evident because of who God has made me now and his spirit, the spirit of Christ resides in me to live this stuff out. So when you encounter difficult passages, don't relax those 
Thomas Jefferson went to UVA, and he was the icon of UVA, started, started the school, and he had a, a Bible, basically, that was called the Jefferson Bible, and, and basically what he went through, is just went through the Bible, and basically, with an X-Acto knife, just took out all the passages he just didn't like. I think, wow, we, we do that a lot today, right? Well, I don't like this part of the Bible, so I'm going to relax that a little bit, I'm going to loose it up a little bit, so that I, you know, it conforms to me. And Jesus says, those that do that are going to be called least in the kingdom. But if I take that seriously and I look at that and say, wow, my love for my neighbor really needs some work, God. And I don't want to minimize that and I don't want to define neighbor in such a narrow way that, hey, I'm doing this. And Jesus even intensifies that, say, oh, your love not only for your neighbors, but for your enemies. And then Jesus is saying, wow, love your neighbors, but hate your enemies. There's no one thing in the Old Testament that says hate your enemies, right? It's just like, okay, these are the people that I can love, and they love me back. And Jesus says, no, that love even needs to extend to your enemy. And it's like, whoa, that's, mm. can we relax that a little bit? <laughs> can I loosen that up? And what Jesus is saying, don't, don't loosen that up. Look at it full in the face and say, God, help me to be this kind of person. Because I don't naturally love my enemies. I want to be where the Pharisees were in hating my enemies, but I know you're calling me to something greater, and I don't want to tweak it and twist it, but I want you to change me from the inside out and help me to have a righteousness that exceeds the Pharisees. So, as you look at the law, to look at it in light of how Jesus interprets it, but to recognize that this law still has authority in pointing to Christ, and then as Christ fleshes that law out for how we're called to live. And I think we need one another's help as we wrestle through some of this stuff. How does this apply in our lives? And to recognize maybe we're not all gonna come out in the same place with all of these things, but you know what, that's okay. The goal is, am I pushing towards being perfect as my heavenly Father is perfect? Not that I'm there, and not that I will ever get there until I'm six feet under and then raised in a new body that actually wants to do all this stuff all the time, but I'm far from that right now. So when you read this passage, I hope it drops you to your knees, but I also hope it helps you to get up and recognize that by the power of the Holy Spirit in me, I have a righteousness of Christ that enables me to begin to live this stuff out in the world, and that's what God's calling me to do. Verse 20 does not invalidate verse 3, right? That blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Jesus doesn't go on and say, you know, those you recognize you don't have what it takes spiritually, but then he later, a few sentences later, said, you got to be more righteous than any dude you've ever met. He's not saying that. But he's saying, let that poor in spirit nature drive you to Christ, receive his righteousness by faith, and then begin to seek to live in a way that's consistent with what he's called all of us human beings to live. And that's the goal, that's the ideal behind all of the law in the Old Testament. Let's pray. Lord, we need your help to look at your word and to live your word rightly. And we know our own tendency to loosen things up a little bit, to fudge a little bit on the edges. Lord, help us not to do that. But as we look at your truth, your word, your law, help us to see those parts that you have accomplished, that you have fulfilled, and to rejoice that you have done that. But in the areas where you are still calling us to grow and change and become more like the people you have designed us to be, Lord, help us not to 
to loosen those things up, but may those things drive us first and foremost to Christ and faith, trusting that his righteousness becomes our own when we trust him. But Lord, don't let us stop there. Then help us to remember that we are indwelt by the Spirit of Christ. And we are enabled by that Spirit to begin to live in a manner that's consistent with the core of your law. Help us to listen to you. And Lord, as even your Great Commission says, that we would learn to obey all of your commandments, which are consistent with the commandments of the Old Testament. Lord, thank you for who you are. Thank you that you are the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, the Old Testament. Help us to walk in a way that recognizes that and also, Lord, give us the wherewithal to be a distinct people, to live out the change from the inside out, not seek to just do religious stuff on the outside. Lord, you want our hearts. You don't want people that simply honor you with our lips, whose hearts are far from you. So Lord, we need help in doing that. So would you draw our hearts to you? Would you change us from the inside out? Lord, none of us are perfect. We need your help even to move in that direction. So help us to do that with honesty and integrity, recognizing, man, there's going to be so many times where we need to repent. We need to turn. We need to rethink what we're doing. But thank you that your grace is sufficient and your mercy is new and you will enable us to get home. And it's in Jesus' precious and powerful name we pray. Amen. Amen.